Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, this is another call for the uh, virus book we're going to be putting out. And today I have uh, Sayed Tagi Takiar. He goes by Shervin. Uh, he's at Yale University. He has a PhD in microbiology and molecular biology uh, from the University of Queensland, Australia. And he's worked on um, projects that include viral vectors. And, uh, you know, he's got a lot of interest. So, Shervin, thanks for coming. Sure. Thank, thank you for inviting me. Good to this, uh, this subject. Yeah. Very timely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to get people from diverse backgrounds to answer questions. So, you know, so that's why I have you here. Yeah. So let's jump into the question. So is there any form of life you know of that doesn't have viruses associated with it? Well, based on what I have read and learned, no, it seems like viruses are pretty ubiquitous. They are present every form that we have found. It seems okay. Like. And then based on, you know, your observations, do you see them as alive? or contingently alive when they're inside of a cell, or what were your thoughts there? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. I think a lot of people have been talked about this, thought about it, philosophized about it. I think, so maybe it's like saying, do you think an algorithm is a computer or not? You know, an algorithm can do functions, but inside the computer. So viruses are programs. In a sense, I can say they're alive because uh, they do replicate, they do program for functions, and if, but of, but of course they don't have all the properties of an organism. You cannot say a virus like breathes when it's in, the, in its viral form, uh, doesn't metabolize. It has a program for metabolism, but it doesn't metabolize per se when it's in this virus form, in its, in its variant form, variant form or, or, or at least not as much as what we uh, we are used to. However, has a program for it. So if we call it a life form, we can say one of the most advanced forms when life has become a program, an, an algorithm. If we absolutely want to want to have, a, you know, a distinction as a, a rigid line, which I believe nature doesn't have. Nature doesn't have these kind of very strict lines. But if we if we were to draw a line like that, I would say viruses are at least footprints of life, right? So it is something that cannot be formed by anything but a live organism. Uh, when you find a virus, they have order in structure, they have a sequence of functions, their program has an aim. So that's why I think it's, it's more, I think a lot of questions are like that. It's more uh, interesting to understand their place in life than calling them alive or not. They definitely have the potential for life. They have very high potential. They have a program. They have a plan for life, but they don't have all the, the specificities of a live organism. So, Gotcha. Okay. In the context in which you understand them, why do you think there are different latency periods when someone first is infected you know, or some creatures infected? Some may be hours, days, some may be years. 
Uh, why do you think there's this uh, variable period in which uh, someone first gets exposed to a virus in the time that uh, it turns pathogenic and affects them negatively? Yeah, so I think, again, in this res respect, they also follow rules of life, rules of nature, really. They, it's all about fitting, right? When does a function that you do fits in your milieu, in your environment? I mean, we see examples of that in our everyday life. As, as an example, you can get one of the best scientists in Europe or US and put them in a desert and they won't be able to function. They fit in a certain lab, in a certain country, in a certain town, in a certain university. So a lot of functions in life are about fitting. And when can you express yourself? And how can you express yourself? I think viruses abide by the same rule. The fact that, so there's this whole time, like there's a time with any virus that they can express themselves, they can replicate more, and it's time for them to come alive, quote unquote. That time is dictated by their environment, which is within the cell. Now we are talking about an integrated virus, the virus inside the cell. Viruses right, right. life cycle outside also, we know that. But that's more of a kind of a demuted, you know, well, do they do they have a life cycle? I thought they're just uh, virions that passively yeah. float around outside yes. cells. Like but yes. do they have a life cycle even then? Let me tell you, I have a more more of an all-inclusive view. I call all of it life. There are parts of life. They're more in a uh, in a more asleep state. They don't, yes, the program is there in the variant and it's ready to bind and then express a function. Inside the cell is the same. Inside the body is the same. They may not express parts of their genome and just be in that semi-live state until the time comes. And that time inside the cell is dictated by a lot of factors that aging that the cell is going through. Right now, we are talking about increased mortality from SARS-CoV-2 in patients who are older. It's something we see, patients who have certain types of disease. A certain type of disease or aging is a code for the virus. Here is the time, meaning certain things, certain parts of this whole process that you need to grow are now available. That's the code. To us is aged patient, patient with a heart failure. To us is a heart failure. To a virus inside is a code for certain prerequisites are available now. So the, the period that the viruses go, go in and they, they do not ex express all their genome also follows the same rule. They need certain prerequisites. What form do you think these, these codes or prerequisites take? I mean, like, Bacteria can do quorum sensing and yeah. have contingent behavior based on that. Maybe viruses are able to use cellular machinery to do their own form of quorum sensing. You know, how many infected cells are nearby? What's the density? Okay, there's enough. Now we go into, uh, you know, lytic action. Yes. So now this is, of course, not my area of research. I am, like you, reading and trying to, un to understand some very, I mean, very, very interesting information had recently come out, particularly in phages and how they have a social life. They talk to each, to each other. And yes, it seems like in most of the functions that viruses do, including what we call quorum sensing, which is, as, as you know, is a term that came from bacteria and use it, uh, they do message each other. And these messages 
are translated through the cells translation machinery. Now that this can be bacterial machinery, we're talking about phages, right? So yes, they, they use the machine, they use the factory per se inside the bacteria or inside the cell to translate their messages and then talk to each, to each other. They do that, it, 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 but this is very recent. It is very interesting. It's, it's just opening up a new field, but based on some very good research, it is uh, recent, Dr. Sorek has, has published that. And there was also a news feature in, uh, I think it was Nature uh, that, talked, that talked about this. It's fascinating. It's just the social behavior. And in the middle is the- So where, where is this in phage? In phage, where does this be? This behavior happens inside of a cell, like just within a cell inside or bacteria. across cells? Yeah, so what they were talking about is inside bacteria. So they, they, they almost have to, right? With a, with a condition that I said, I said they are using the, uh, the translation machinery inside the bacteria to translate their, ma their message. So they basically have to be inside, use that machine, create the messages, and then talk to each, to each other. Some of these messages are question and response, right? Does a bacteria grow? How many bacteria are around? How many of these phages are inside the bacteria? It's a pretty complicated scheme that is coming out of this. Yeah, that, that leads into a question I was going to ask you. So phages communicating through bacteria, I guess they do it through plasmids. Because I was wondering, in human cells, I wonder if viruses are able to have the cells put out specialized extracellular vesicles and use that as a form of communication as well. Yes. So this whole science of extracellular vesicles is becoming very interesting. I think in one of the conversations we talked about, we touched on this subject a little bit. And so there have been good research showing that this kind of communication, meaning a particle containing genetic material being produced in one cell and then transfer to another cell is being utilized in some form, for instance, in cancer. You know, like cancer cells put out different ones because they're cancerous, but I wonder, like, again, phages are probably getting bacteria to put out specialized plasmids. And I'm thinking that, you know, uh, viruses are causing human or mammalian cells to send out specialized extracellular vesicles, you know, as communication. So I can say that's entirely possible. The specific examples of that, viruses causing that, uh, is very like, likely. I cannot remember. And by, the, and by the way, the cancer, for instance, one of the most famous types of work that was done was cancer cell modulating the environment distally, like away from the, from the cancer cell, modulating the environment by regulating some of the supporting cells. That was the fasc fascinating part. Not just that the vesicles are out. No, just that that the existence of these this vesicles causes non-cancerous cells to become more responsive to a metastasis. That was the fascinating part as a function. I think they call it niche construction. Niche construction, yes, a niche. So they are, they are creating a niche. That, that, that word, of course, came from stem cell work, but now we use it as tumor niche. It's one of my, uh, one part of my research is about that and endothelium, how the role of endothelium, the vascular cells in creating that niche. And if the question is, for instance, are the virus can, can is, it, is it possible for viruses to create a niche, let's say for cancer to grow? 
Yes, I, I believe that it is. I How much data I have, I do not have solid data yet. I'm looking at some some foot, footprints, it's, it's speculation at, at this point. We are looking at things that viruses can do and through that increase the potential for tumor growth, which is equivalent to creating a niche for a certain cell to grow. Okay. Meaning that we have okay. similar functions. How far do you think the co-option of cells can go by viruses. Um, I mean, I, I guess, well, I'd have to probably, probably provide a specific example, but um, I mean, again, if they can do quorum sensing using the cell's machinery, um, I wonder if they're doing some immune system monitoring from within the cell. I guess they must be because this was a question I was going to ask you now is some viruses will be, you know, pathogenic, but then they'll go into a latent period, like, you know, hepatitis for years or decades. And then yes. something happens in the host. Maybe they're immunosuppressed or they're senescent, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And then they turn mm-hmm. lytic and like like rats leaving the ship, they blow everything open and, and destroy, you know. What do, exactly. what do you think governs that behavior and, and how is that monitoring accomplished to do that? Some of that, as I said, is basically the, the fit. For instance, hepatitis C, I worked on hepatitis C years ago and hepatitis C gets reactivated. Hepatitis C is one of the wonders of, of, of virology. It's a simple virus actually. Uh, but can be latent for a long time, and you may not even have difficulty finding it. Uh, we were one of the groups who made a very highly sensitive assay for detecting hepatitis C virus. Uh, and then, yes, and then something happens, and it's an injury, it's a trigger of some sort, and the viruses start to replicate. Now, at that time, a lot of it seems to be related to the immunity coming down. So immunity has also is the other side of this, has been programmed to look at anything foreign, anything that doesn't belong, and taking them out, and taking the cells that harbor that. So now as soon as those go away, or a mimicry happens, meaning the virus now or the code that is putting out is mimics one of the codes that our immune system is used to, meaning is recognizing them as self. If that happens, then viruses can grow. We usually use viral mimicry in the other sense, how viruses mimic some antigen and in a cellular sense um, and then do things. So this is the other way. There may be induced tolerance and the viruses can then grow. So that is how, I mean, at least some of the events in the interaction between viruses and cells, they lay dormant, as I said, a prerequisite. I put it in the general category of prerequisite. It can be that immune system has to be suppressed for them to be able to grow and have their antigens out or, or expressed, and then um, they replicate further. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But how far this co-option can go, that was your more general philosophical question. I can tell you, yeah. I think, as far as any, any function, any biological function go. I mean, we are talking about gen, uh, uh, genomic elements, right? We are, we are talking about genomic elements that may comprise up to 50% of our genome. Oh, I thought it was like uh, 8 or 10%. So eight or 10, 10% are, endog- are, are endogenous retroviral elements. So those are the ones that, that mimic very closely a retrovirus. But then we have all these other groups. They're called lines or signs, interspersed elements. These have 
like they are very similar. They, they have similar functions to endogenous retroviruses. So some people believe that those are retroviruses that have lost part of their genome, but they retain some of the functions. And if we get into the lines and signs and the group, they do a lot. They, are, they can form and regulate how a cell is, what a cell is, what a cell does, which gene comes up, which gene is, is, is silenced. They do very, very basic elements to functions. Okay. So that is a part that I'm interested in because, as you know, I work on microRNAs, and these elements, these interspersed, interspersed elements, they can program the microRNA function on some mRNAs, which I think is fascinating. Uh, so wow. they're, they're basically sculpting the expression of the genome at multiple levels, saying, well, here's a gene that has to be silenced now. They, using your word, co-opt a microRNA to now come and sit on this particular gene, this RNA, this mRNA, and to go away, to get degraded. They co-opt transcription factors to come and sit on a particular gene for that to be ex to be expressed. They keep they they actually function on cro on chromatin modeling. Chromatin modeling you probably have heard is basically the basic way eukaryotic cell will select which genes to ex to express and which genes to uh, keep away from inhibition. So okay. we are there. We are basically every every step of gene expression, every step of life. They're having a, lower, a role in. Yeah, amazing. Do you think viruses at all are like a swarm? You know, like if you have bees, you have drones and workers and the queen, et cetera. They're all similar, not exact phenotype, but, um, you know, genetically they're all, I don't know how similar, but probably incredibly similar, you know, but they're all bee. They all work together. They're like a swarm. And in viruses, you know, I've, I've read about quasi-species. So mm -hmm. these would be viruses that, you know, have slightly different sequences, but they're all pretty much morphologically and functionally the same virus. So do you think that um, when an infection happens, it's just a pure, you know, uh, one sequence virus? Or do you think that there's a swarm of quasi-species that all have maybe slightly different ability and that's what does the infection? Okay, so this is a very interesting question you bring up because it has some philosophical impl impl implications about evolution, social evolution in general. Now, quasi-species, let's just talk about quasi-species for a second. Quasi-species are different sequences of the same virus in a host, right? So quasi-species, like I worked with that when I was working on hepatitis C. We know how, we sort of know how they're generated. There are polymerases that viruses use and all other or organisms use to replicate their genome. Now, these uh, polymerases can be permissive, meaning they're not high fidelity, meaning they allow some mistakes in sequence. That's how quasi-species are generated. The polymerase of hepatitis C is permissive. So there are, there are quasi-species. There are many se sequences with some mistakes, with some, some, with some variation that come out in every host. Now, why is this important? Quasi-species is one of the ways that that you know they may work the same way that mutation works in evolution. There are types that may be more resistant to or more capable of survival, right? So in that sense, quasi-species can be a tool for survival. You have sequences for some reason, one of them maybe 
better fit, more fit for survival. Now, are these cooperating? Are these, like quasi-species in particular, are they cooperating? Well, it goes back to how much you submit to the whole theory of, for instance, selfish gene, you know, th that philosophy, that uh, here is a particular sequence, a particular life form, and it rep replicates more of itself, and it, all the rest is manifestations of, of, of that. You probably have heard about the theories of Dr. Wilson about ants and bees and how different ants or bees are extensions of the genome of the queen. And okay. each of them have an expression of their own gene, but they're extensions of the, of the queen. So in that sense, they are all working together to propagate the genome of that queen, that, of, of, of that queen bee or queen ant. Oh, quick, quick question here. I don't know if you know, if not, it's okay, but are there different types of bees just epigenetic variants with different markings of, of the others, of the queen, or they literally have different sequences or additional sequences or chromosomes? So there are epigenetic dif dif differences in each bee. The genome, uh, the, the content of genome from is coming from the from the queen. There are different kinds of com combinations between the queen and the father, and it comes out in different bees, but the content is coming from them, from the two parents. No, no, I know that, but what, what makes, on a genetic level, what differentiates a worker bee from a drone from a queen? Is it literally they have different sequence of base pairs, or is it just at the level of uh, epigenetic marks that's the difference? Different expression. It's different expression, not, not the sequence. It's, a different, it's mostly different expression, it's meaning the, the, epi, the epigenetic. Okay. So in that sense, a viruses can also do that. They have quasi-species. There are different sequences, maybe with different chances of survival. The more variable they are, the higher chance, the bigger chance they have for surviving one of them, which is coming from a, an, an initial copy, right? Initial se sequence that has variations. Now, the cooperation, if you mean by that different quasi-species doing different things as a team, the way that ants do or bees do, I don't believe that, I, I have not heard of that. That's a higher level of cooperation or eusociality, if you've heard about that. And uh, classically, you say only humans and ants or bees, wasps, maybe some of them do that, meaning different members of a society doing different jobs and then getting to, together in a big hierarchy. I have not heard of viruses doing that. I think of a one virus, one cell infection model. But so there's a couple questions wrapped up in this. Um, are there any circumstances where it takes multiple viruses to infect a cell successfully? You know, what if it takes two or three to fuse to a cell membrane? You know, is there any, any papers on that, any observation of that? And then once a cell is infected, can it be infected, let's say, by, you know, multiple different quasi-species of the same virus? And because it's infected that way with multiple again, variants of the same virus, perhaps that infection is more successful if that sort of thing happens. Um, I have not heard of research that can answer each of these questions completely, but there are some bits of information that may fit to parts of your question. For instance, we know that there are times that we need to have a certain number of viruses per cell to have a productive in infection. Now, is that in a stochastic event? Is it just that 
because we have, I mean, all the viral infections start from binding, as you know. There is some binding event that's, that should happen. And binding events have this kind of stochastic nature to, to, to them. A successful binding, per se, may need a certain hit, a certain num number of hits for one of them to be su successful. Now, if that translates into actually 10 of them have to bind and then do something to the cell for one of them to get in, I don't know. People may have been looking at look, looking. The recent social life of viruses, which was talked about was in phages, goes a step further. Different phages talking to each other about how many we are, what should we do, where are we going. There is some information there, some finding there, and that is much more advanced than what we know about other viruses. A third way of, of answering your question is with the clinical observation. So I'm coming out of the cells, I'm going back to, to my medicine part. Okay. We know that the progression, the viral progression for hepatitis viruses varies with or with like with a, with a, in, in the presence of HIV, if you have hepatitis B plus C, if you have hepatitis P plus Delta plus, plus C, the progression changes and becomes more fatal. So there are these bits and pieces. It seems like they can cooperate at times, like in the case of HIV and hepatitis B and hepatitis C, the, if we call that co cooperation, the, the infection becomes more severe, harder to treat. So that we also know. Now, what exactly is the mechanism? I don't know about that. Maybe have some, some people have found things. I have not heard it. Um, okay. Yeah, if I was able to make an isolate of a virus where mm -hmm. it's just one sequence, that's it. And I would, you know, then I was to, and I was to infect an animal. And then I was to infect another animal with the normal wild type where you get all these quasi species and you get like this whole, again, swarm of variation. Do you think that, the infection would be a lot more effective if I used a, uh, you know, a varied population versus like an isolate of one sequence only? Yeah, possibly. The chances of survival are high, yes. I would put my money on yes, because you will have higher chance of hiding from immunity just because you have variation. Within your quasi-species, if you have a virus that retains its replicative ability, has the replication machinery, has a variation in sequence that can hide from the immune system better, that one will win. Uh, we are talking about the same thing. I was talking to a patient of mine two days ago about this whole issue. I talked to this patient about COVID-19 and where it came from. And this patient of mine um, uh, was, I mean, believed that this can be, this is like flu and flu is new and every, every year and it can be very similar. And I said, well, it is correct to some degree. It is the mechanisms of viral hybridization or variation happens in both flu and SARS in principle. The difference is that with this SARS-CoV-2, if we, the variety of sequences that you're generating, if within them you have a variation, a type that has a sequence for the code protein, for instance, that immune system has not seen, cannot mount an immune response against, that sequence will have higher chance of survival. However, the, the experiment you were suggesting, that if you get one sequence and you put it in versus the variety of sequences, I hesitated a little bit because, as I said, making variation in sequence is an inherent 
pro property of the polymerase of some viruses, meaning that even if you get one sequence of, of hepatitis C and put it in an animal or in a cell, since the polymerase is promiscuous, it allows mistakes, very soon you will have quasi-species anyway. Now, putting in quasi, that increase the viability of the virus. I think it still does, it will still increase the, ch the chance, but we would never know until we test it. <laughs> Yeah, what if we revisit vi you know, viral titer and look at it not just as the amount of virus, but look at the variation in the, the viral load that you're getting? If we include it that way, maybe titer takes on a different or an additional meaning now or an additional nuance. Yeah, some of that has been done, like the variation, like the quasi-species to some degree has been done. Um, I don't know if, they, if there has been a clinical association. There might have been in hepatitis C uh, literature, there might have been a, because there was some talk about quasi-species and how, ex how extensive it is and viral pro progression, but I'm not entirely sure about that. I can check that and get, get back to you. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering, you know, you study a lot of RNA and everything. So from what I understand, uh, there is, there is an epigenetics to uh, RNA as well as DNA. Do you think that viruses acquire epigenetic marks when they're inside a cell? And do you think that that leads to further variation? And can quasi-species be defined not only as, you know, variants with different sequences, but variants that have different epigenetic marks? So I think we are talking about different parts of the, ex the expression, right? Like, for instance, RNA can be spliced in different forms. The same DNA element can make... RNA, and then those RNAs can be spliced to different variants of the same gene. And this is one of the things that, as I said, lines and signs can affect. They can affect splicing. These are all, the sequences are coming from the same gene, the same DNA. When we say epigenetic as DNA part and the RNA part, it means that there are different mechanisms that are affected DNA or affected at, at the RNA stage or the DNA stage. Epigenetic is just a very general term for many, many different, different processes that can happen. So now viruses can definitely get inside the cell and affect the epigenetics of the cell. One of the ways is what I just, just told you. Micro-RNA-mediated med reg regulation is one of the epigenetics forms of regulation. And uh, viral elements can do that, can affect the microRNAs within the cell. So yes, they can affect the epigenetics of the cell. Now, can we, that's another step, because you're asking about that, right? You're asking about epigenetics of the virus, right? I'm wondering, yeah, do viruses uh, acquire epigenetic marks? Yeah. I'm not sure. They might. I mean, the machinery, the possibility is there. Can we call it an epigenetic mark for the, for the virus? And viruses are more fit. I mean, they can become after epigenetic mechanisms. I think it is possible. But again, this is a specific in instance if somebody has... Found. I cannot remember. I'm just trying to think. Uh, for instance, a lot of people talk about chromatin, chromatin remodeling for, for epigenetics. So I'm not sure about the answer to that, to that question. Yeah, because if, if viruses can acquire epigenetic marks, that would be another source of variation. So now I could have, you know, if I'm infected by a virus, I may be infected by many variants in the nucleic acids that comprise the virus. And each of those variants may have a different set of epigenetic marks from 
you know, past infection. So I'm trying to go back and think about mechanisms of, of epigenetic variability. So one of it, the most famous one, chromatin remodeling. Chromatin remodeling is which gene is expressed and which gene is not. So if we talk about a simple virus, like hepatitis C virus, right? Hepatitis C virus, well, I mean, we are out of, it's an RNA virus, so we're out of chromatin. We're not even talking about chromatin. We're not talking about methylation either. MicroRNA is the one that I'm, I'm hesitating about. If, for instance, a quasi-species are sculpted or formed that can co-opt a microRNA better than others, for instance, it is possible. I mean, we are putting a sequence in a soup, in a conglomerate of sequences within the cell. And as we talked about, uh, there is this whole endogenous RNA circuit. RNAs talk to each to each other. So now if within the evolution of a virus, if during the evolution of a virus inside the cell, some sequences are selected based on interaction with other RNA elements, for instance, is that a possibility? And then that, that RNA element, that RNA type, that, that variant survives more. I think the possibility is there. It is possible that some viral sequences are more fit there are parts, parts of virus, parts of the viral genome that, that, that do not tolerate as much variability. For instance, the polymerase structure. Parts of the polymerase structure do not tolerate much variability. Any virus that, you, that loses that dies. Any sequence that loses that dies. But there are parts that tolerate a lot of variability. SARS-CoV-2, we're talking about flu, right? Uh, and the, the code protein for flu can or, or, or SARS-CoV can, can vary, can be the product of a, of a hybridization. Now, if, if there is an intracellular counterpart to that, it is possible that there are certain sequences that are fit. I don't know of, an, of, of a specific ex example, okay. but possibilities there for that type, for that type of epigenetics. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if methylation could happen, you know, et cetera, but I wonder how much... Uh if any epigenetic variation happens to viruses, so. Yeah, so the, that would be her the herpes viruses. Those are, those are even more sophisticated viruses that have DNA and then in a, they go through sequences. Methylation of viral sequences is, I mean, there are some virologists who work on that. It's a very interesting area. I don't think I know enough about that. Okay. I try to, to stick with what I know a little bit more, more about. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem for these for these viruses for the RNA viruses. I'm I'm trying to give you really softball questions. You know, just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes. if, um, <laughs> if if I get infected by a virus, you know, let's say I don't know, uh, you know, a bat flies out of a cave and bites my neck and infects me with a virus, you know, and I call myself number one, and then I mm -hmm. go home and I, you know, I get. My wife's sick and mm -hmm. she's number two and she gets someone else sick. And, you know, the virus passages through a hundred different people. How do you think it would change? And I know this is, you know, depends on the virus, et cetera. But, you know, as a virus passages through many people, for instance, or many animals, how do you think they tend to change? Is there any direction they tend to go in? Less pathogenic, more latent, you know? It varies. It, it, it varies. That's, that's all I can say. I mean, this whole... Um... Again, the creation gets so much. This whole pandemic is because of that. It's because of passage of virus and going into one organism and to, to another one and bringing sequences from each and putting them together. So viruses getting together and sharing sequences, for instance, to come up with a more fit virus. So 
there are, it's, a, it's, a, it's an observation, this whole herd immunity, you probably have heard about it. The herd immunity is the opposite of this. So it really varies. It depends. It's a general comment or general question, and there are specific examples of it. I don't think the answer is positive or negative, yes or no. It's just different things at different times. Okay. If there's a virus out there, let's say, you know, uh, again, I'll just pick some random one. So if there's a virus out there that mm-hmm. makes people sick and, you know, what, how would it be different if I got sick from someone that was like on death's door, they were horribly sick with a given virus. You know, what do you think would happen to me versus if I get sick from someone that's like barely feels anything, you know, they have the same virus, but they just, for some reason, they're just, they barely feel anything. How do you think that it would affect me differently? if I was to get sick from one of those two individuals? There is a simple answer to this, and that is if the person who is sicker, uh, because of their lowered immune status or the higher replication of the virus, they may have more viral load to give you. Well, if we we assume viral load was the same, what what would be another reason that it would be different? That's a difficult one. That's a, that's a difficult one. Is it possible that you get it from a person who, because of the fitness of the virus, is sicker? That is, is possible. The example of, of that one about that's a quasi-species with, 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 with hepatitis C that I said um, I, can look, I can look up. That's the example I know. Uh, the, those are variations within, the, within one viral sequence. And if that's... Vaguely remembered that there was some association with severity, but you know I'm not a hepatologist. I don't work on hepatitis C right now. I can check it and get 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 back to you. Yeah, I, I, you know I don't want to like give you all this homework and stuff. You know I wanted your speculation, but you know it's okay if you're willing. That's great, but uh, it's okay if you don't know the answer because I don't think anyone knows. But you know your thought process on it is what is interesting, and that's why I'm asking. <laughs> so um, sure, sure. I think it's possible. I okay, think, I think it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, just a couple more questions. You know, I know we're getting to the end. Do you think that the, you know, so an infection, I'm imagining it as, you know, variants of a given virus, nucleotide variants, and also they have different different uh, epigenetic marks. Mm-hmm. So if I'm mm-hmm. infected by a viral swarm of a given virus, do you think that the um, the variants and the, you know, the various epigenetic marks, which came as a memory from past infections, could act as immune system for the viral swarm. Do you think that this could be uh, its own version of an immune system? Because these variants and these different types of viruses may help protect it or allow it to adapt or become more fit to a given host because of past infections and past learnings and retention of these variants. I think it functions in a, in a way that evolution functions, right? Viruses survive if they are fit. Viruses are annihilated if they're not fit or if they fail in the competition with another virus. Those instances are known. For instance, when, when coronaviruses, it is, it is known that some coronaviruses come in animals and then suddenly they're wiped out, they go away. They're fatal, they're very su- successful in, in the beginning, but what happens is there another type of the same virus propagates, uses the same recess species as God. So, if you mean memory in that general sense, yes, it works like, like that. The viruses that, that exist right now are the fit, the fittest ones for this time. Otherwise, they won't survive. There is the concept of memory in the immune system. I'm, I'm not sure if you were asking about that also. 
Because immune system, yes, immune system also keeps the memory, and we know a little bit more about that, the memory cells. Yeah, the two-second version of the question is, do viral swarms have an immune system? And now I'm defining what I mean by that is, well, could a viral swarm have an immune system because these variants will, will be the, the fittest survivors from previous infections? So the whole collection of them together may serve as an immune system for the viral swarm because of its past experience, you know? Yes. So the, the cooperation between viruses a little bit in, in phage, a little bit is known about. How, and then is that formed through an evolutionary process? It seems like. So an evolutionary process have caused types of viruses like phages to exist now. And these types of viruses that exist seem to be able to cooperate together, the example being phages. So different parts of your question have been answered to some degree about some viruses. It's interesting that you're putting it in as immune system, because as soon as we talk about immune system, we are talking about cells doing the specific things. I think we are a little bit away from calling it an immune system, saying this, I'm not an evolutionary biologist or, or virologist, so I may be behind on this. I just have knowledge about little bits and pieces here and there. Um, what I know is this. Yes, viral sequences that exist and are active at the moment, they, they have to be the fittest. Can these viruses work together? It seems like based on the, some data in phage, putting this, this together can be called this the, the, an immune reaction. Maybe instead of system, I'll call it an immune reaction or a response, a survival res- response. Can this be a coordinated res- response in a general sense? Maybe a, a survival strategy. Let me call it that. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm, I hope I didn't give you too hard a time, but you did great with the questions. And uh, what's the best way for listeners to find out more about about your work, by the way? I publish papers. I'm Since we had this discussion before, I'm thinking about writing more uh, for a general audience. But I, I have so so far mostly my my work is in in a specialty journals recently in cancer and asthma. I uh, through Yale we have a um, we have a mechanism to uh, that we we try to co- to co- to collaborate to some degree with the media, particularly if there is an important message. I collaborated a couple of times uh, with our media group. As things come up, I'm going to try to to help with them more. My time allows. Conversations that we had today, the type of conversation that just, you know, bringing science to media, to people, to people who are, who are enthusiastic, I'm happy to help out with. No, that's great. Shervin, Shervin, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Sure, sure. No, no problem. Thank you for bringing up. These are, these are fascinating concepts. These are really, and you know, to bring this to the population, to society and Thinking at this level about them is amazing. Uh, thank you for for continuing to do what you do and <laughs> bring these, oh. these things up. Yeah, no problem. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.